I prefer to watch Batman Returns at Christmas time, but I could watch it not at Christmas because it's such a great movie. <coughs> oh, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> Did you just explode? I was going to talk instead of coughed. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster in San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Mm. I, I tweeted a while back that I was feeling homesick for Los Angeles, which occurs every now and then. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, especially in winter. Right. I mean, I don't like being cold. So there's that. And it's been getting progressively colder. We actually have snow now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because, you know, the city, they kind of put on a little bit of a show for Christmas. They hang the lights and Venice Beach is really cool looking and, uh, you know, all the way up to Santa Monica. That was kind of my area. Yeah, I, I um, remember as a kid, you know, because we, as a kid, it the idea of Christmas in a non, like the idea of Christmas in, you know, a warm, like tropical climate or a desert climate was always weird because it's like, you know, you associate snow and cold and, and those things with Christmas. Right. Uh, but I don't know, like living in San Diego, it it does... It feels Christmassy, like people put up lights. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask is that I know I know that, you know, Los Angeles, you know, they Christmas it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, the street lights and stuff like that, they'll put up some shit oh, yeah. um, and corner shops and stuff like that. Of course, they're going to put lights on. But what is what is what does San Diego look like during Christmas? Is it that same sort of uh, Shane Black aesthetic? <laughs> Uh, so I've never been to LA during Christmas time, really. Mm-hmm. So I've never really like experienced an LA Christmas, but, uh, San Diego does it up like downtown. There's Christmas decorations everywhere. It's, I think it might even be more so because so much of San Diego feels like kind of smaller towns. Cause it's, it, it's a bunch of neighborhoods that are connected essentially, you know, there's, there's over a million people living here, but it just feels like a bunch of little towns that are connected. There is a light parade of boats uh, in the bay, which I've actually never been to. We might uh, we might see it this weekend if we remember. Um, uh, but yeah, like downtown, we'll put up Christmas lights, um, you know, like various restaurants and stuff. We'll we'll deck the halls. It, you mm-hmm. know, it gets it, I, I don't feel like I'm wanting for Christmas here. Right. Yeah. And San Diego in general is like a little bit more suburban yeah. in, in its vibe than Los Angeles. I mean, Los Angeles certainly has its like bougie areas and stuff. And it also is like it's very industrial uh, cityscapes. And, and yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 everything um, kind of crammed together. But uh, but yeah, that's kind of why I like you know, where I lived over on the West side over by um, Venice and Marina del Rey and, and uh, uh, Santa Monica is because th- it's really beachy and, and kind of touristy and they 
they specifically made an effort to make it look Christmassy in that yeah, area. Yeah, there, there is uh there is a specific vibe to a beach Christmas, mm-hmm. which sounds sounds like a Jack Johnson song, but um, <laughs> I uh, probably I'm is. Sure it is probably is on this episode. Uh, we aren't talking about any Christmas movies specifically, or at least in theory, but we are talking about King Richard, uh, which premiered on HBO Max. Um, it kind of has some awards buzz. So we're going to talk about that. And at the end of the episode for the streaming homework, we're going to be reviewing uh, 1988's Midnight Run, which is available to watch on Netflix. But uh, before we get to that, I wanted to start with uh, sort of a game and assignment. I asked you before we started to think of a few movies that are in ongoing franchises, some mm-hmm. ongoing movie franchises that have yet to have a Christmas iteration in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones could use the Christmas treatment? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I feel like I've got some fucking winners here. Yeah, I I, I kind of had to come up with mine. It took some forethought, mostly because um, with a lot of these like ongoing franchises that have like reached above five films, somewhere in there they already do. Yes, I was I was excluding uh, obviously the MCU because it's had a couple uh, Christmas things now. It's had you know Iron Man three was set in Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, the new Hawkeye series that's airing right now is set during Christmas. So they've acknowledged the Christmas season. They're doing a Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. Yeah, so I I tried to think of stuff that has not had Christmas injected into its DNA yet. Right. And one of mine, I had to actually like uh, phone a friend to to double check. But um, but yeah, let's let's just go ahead and start with that. What is your first pick for? uh, film franchise that could use a Christmas entry. So the my first pick is not only a Christmas entry, it is a full fucking reboot. Mm. Uh, I would love to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I would love to see it set during the 80s. And I okay. would love to see it set at Christmas time. Okay, why Christmas? Here's the thing. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be Christmas. Uh, but I just think that it, it would just fit their vibe really well. And everybody loves New York City at Christmas time. That's uh, true. I, and it would distinguish itself from previous iterations. So in this version of the Ninja Turtles, would this be like a spiritual sequel to the first three films from the 80s and 90s? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, like with the Jim Henson costumes and everything, or, or would I, I wouldn't necessarily directly relate it, but it would be closer to tone to that, right? Um, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I not the Michael Bay stuff. I'm, I'm just not interested in that. Um, I don't think anybody was. I mean, here's the thing: Ninja Turtles has reboot a thousand times. Uh-huh. Um, through the cartoons, there have been so many different versions there, you know, right. uh, in the movies, there have been several versions. They're already working on a, a different reboot for the movies. So, yeah, mine would be a period piece to, like, definitely reference 
its origins. Um, But I wouldn't be necessarily beholden to those movies. I think it would be cool to just, yeah, kind of reboot it, you know, kind of the way Tom Holland's Spider-Man, right? Uh, Which is coming out this fucking right now. Um, uh, Right. It it acknowledges that Spider-Man has been this existing character. It, It acknowledges he has a past, but they don't necessarily go into the details because we've seen those movies so many times. Mm-hmm. I would try to just give it more of that vintage feel because I mean, obviously nostalgia is very huge right now. Our generation yeah. is referencing the eighties, the way the eighties generation referenced the forties. We kind of talked about that on the last episode. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think, more people are kind of referencing the nineties or even the early two thousands at this point. Sure. I, it could be set in the nineties too. That would be fine. But I just think that the Ninja Turtles and Christmas would be a really fun mix. Again, everybody loves New York at Christmas. And I just, th- I think it would be something different for them. Okay. Yeah. I'm down. Okay. Well, your, uh, preamble before you told me your pick, um, kind of, put a dump on my first pick. Okay, um, no, that's fine. I wasn't aware of some of these things happening in the MCU, but I put <laughs> Thor Christmas on Asgard. So okay. rather than it being, you know, just a a uh, piece in the larger MCU puzzle, um, I would want it to be kind of it's like a standalone in almost like sort of a side story right like sure, a, yeah. in the comic it'd be just kind of like a christmas annual or something um where they're having christmas in asgard but it's like the old the, like like pagan. Pa- yeah pagan uh norse christmas traditions yeah um and you know he's up there with jane and blah 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 and she's like you know trying to impress the family or whatever i don't know she even alive anymore i don't know um, she is, but all of the family is not. So, yeah. Well, I don't know. But, but it I could mean, also it take could... place between movies or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. They could have set it between Dark yeah. World and and one of the last ones or whatever happened. Or they could have been snapped back into existence. Who cares? But <laughs> uh, yeah. So then they're they're doing that. They're they're planning Christmas dinner, and then there is a revenge plot by those the frost giants are the essentially look like evil elves and well well well, okay you're you're mixing villains now because uh, oh yeah and for the dark world they were evil elves yeah yeah. like so there are literally frost giants and evil elves in i mean the flavor works right (laughs) that's what i'm saying I mean, you get you get a big Christmas dinner, you get a bunch, you know, uh, uh, pagan mythology is very like tied into the whole Christmas tradition. Some of them, you know, come from that. Literally, I mean, I'm sure that a couple listeners might be very upset that you are equating Norse mythology and pagan. Uh, <laughs> pagan. Right. I mean, I, I know that there's like a difference between like Norse and Celtic and and, you know, Icelandic and stuff. And they're, they're I think. You know, Christianity is borrowed heavily from all of the above. Absolutely. Just wherever I, white I'm, people I'm just, have raped and pillaged, we have stolen their culture. Uh, I mean, yeah. And reappropriated that, it for Christian Well, I, have I versions. ever told you my really, it's uh, my joke about like 
you know, why white people steer still cultures. Cause like we don't have any culture of our own. Well, that's, that's not a joke. That's just reality. <laughs> yeah. That's well, just... Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's more to the joke, but yeah, um, <laughs> that's the, the premise of the joke. Sure. But so, yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's like basically Christmas dinner gets interrupted by frost giants. And because there's some like, christmas spell slash miracle maybe they uncover the truth of like the uh the like a some version of like a norse santa claus that has to save the day i don't know we we can figure that out later but that's that's what i'm seeing no i I like it i i do think learns uh, the meaning of maybe she's like one of the like a grinch she hates christmas because of some trauma in her life or some bullshit and then she learns like the meaning of pegging christmas Sure. Yeah. I love it. I I mean, again, I do think you might be getting basically your wish because uh, there, there is going to be a guardians of the galaxy Christmas special. So this, uh, I did not know. And I also, I'm not watching Hawkeye right now. So yeah, it is very Christmassy as well, which uh, like even more so than Iron Man three. That's hard to top. I mean, it's literally like the plot is he has to solve this mystery in time to get home for Christmas. All right. I fucking love it. It's been it's been so much fun so far. <laughs> what is it? What is your second pick? Uh, my second pick is Hellboy versus Krampus. OK, yeah, we're kind of on a similar wavelength on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, uh, canonically, you know, there was like a one shot Christmas like story where Hellboy met Krampus or whatever, you know, it's a short story. Yeah. And I would like to embrace, I, I think part of the problems with Hellboy movies is they try to encompass this whole mythology, you know, in one or two movies when Hellboy for the first decade or so was mostly a collection of short stories. Yeah, it was like a monster of the week kind of comic. Yeah, it was a very, yes, exactly. It was. Is very like pulp adventure. Uh, there was kind of this larger story thread, but you know, right? They wouldn't deal with that every issue. In fact, more often than not, it was a collection of short stories and stuff. So, yeah. I think the movies need to embrace that a little bit more. And you know, it doesn't have to be Hellboy stops the apocalypse. Let's let's again kind of reboot it a little bit. Um, we can play, you know, we can play again on what's kind of been established, but let's just do a, like a kind of a, yeah, one-off story where he's fighting the Krampus, the literal Krampus monster. Right. Um, you know, it also wouldn't be the Krampus from the movie Krampus, uh, but it would draw on the Krampus legend and you kind of do your own Hellboy spin on it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if the one you said there was a short story of it or something. So there's probably some artwork to go off of there as far as the yeah. depiction and use that as kind of the launching point and, and let's make a whole fucking Christmas movie out of it. Yeah. That could be fun. It could take place in Germany. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some old village in the yeah, black and, forest. And, you know, it also is like kind of a horror movie uh, in the way that Hellboy, you know, draws from horror comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, people like that. People like and you can do it to where it's not so scary that, 
you know, it doesn't have to be straight up like Black Christmas or Silent Night, Deadly Night or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this kind of spooky, dark Christmas legend versus Hellboy, I think would be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I'm into it. Uh, the second one here, this is the one I had to phone a friend. I <laughs> There's been so many of these movies that I thought that, you know, it's almost like statistically there probably has been a Christmas one at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a Saw Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I What's text- in the box? You're in the box. Right. I texted a friend of the show, Sean. He, he follows those movies. And I said, has there ever been one that takes place during Christmas? And he said, no. So um, if I'm wrong, it's because of that. Uh, but yes, uh, I have no real desire to like follow the Saw franchise. But if there was one that just like fully embraced kind of going in a more camp direction with it and making mm-hmm. it like, you know, tie in the traps and the and uh, and the aesthetics all to like Christmas stuff, you know, Jigsaw with a Santa hat and. Yeah, yeah, I'd watch that. I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, <laughs> he kind of has a Christmas vibe anyway, with like the little, like little the, tricycle, and like the spirals on his cheeks that are like yeah, red, yeah. kind of look pepperminty. Like, yeah, just put him in like a dark green suit. Uh, yeah, with a little, I love it. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe I he's mean, punishing is... people because they don't appreciate the the time of giving or. Yeah, I don't know whatever his weird ass philosophies are anymore, but he he fucking just murders Grinches. I love it. Yeah, that's that's all I have for that. No, I mean, I I feel like that's all it needs to be. Right. You know, like somebody opens a package and and it's like, you know, this giant Christmas present and they take, you know, the, the wrapping paper off and it's like their loved one in this insane trap. Right. Uh, Makes total sense. Okay, so my last one is probably the biggest running franchise. The other two were kind of like reboots, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of like just stand alone, do your own things. This one I'm thinking is full canon. Uh, Fast and the Furious, Mission North Pole. See, yes, I thought of this. It, it's almost too easy. I yeah. kind of, I stopped myself. So the plot is there's, you know, this high tech, sophisticated uh, group of bank robbers. And, you know, they're like hitting all these banks at Christmas time and downloading people's personal data and uh, ripping off all of these people. And of course, the Fast and the Furious gang has to save Christmas for all the families because it's family. <laughs> and then, you know, at the end, it ends with them all celebrating Christmas together once the heist has been stopped. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it kind of writes itself. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the kind of like the saw thing. It it um it just makes too much sense. Well, I mean, yes, because all of the themes, uh, you know, the running themes of family and togetherness and like, you right, know, we're, you're stronger together versus separate, like all of that just works so easily with christmas themes yeah and then you can i mean you could put it somewhere that's snowy or very like i mean they, yeah i mean there was already everywhere. You know, a giant car chase on an iced over lake so we gotta 
maybe top that maybe uh, uh during a mountain avalanche in the swiss alps or something um and you know they've got to like outrace the avalanche right yeah i mean that's that's literally like a callback to triple x <laughs> so yeah okay yeah my last one and maybe this is a little too obvious it looks like this is going to be an on-running franchise now i didn't necessarily want it to be but it's sort of become that um toy story now oh, i looked yeah. up i looked I, it up I, I actually thought about this one and forgot to write it down yes absolutely there has been a special apparently called Toy Story That Time Forgotten, which is like a prehistoric, like dinosaur thing or whatever. Um, and I think it has some Christmas element in the plot. What? But I, I maybe it just maybe that's like the framing device. And then I don't I don't know. I didn't watch it. But um, in well, my, this is this is how you reboot the franchise, right? Woody's gone. I don't necessarily have to reboot it. I, and and like we said with Thor, I, this could even take place like when Andy's still a kid. But here's why I thought of it. There was this this passing gag, this joke in I think Toy Story three, where they're gonna they're gonna have to go live in the attic now because Andy's leaving for college, uh-huh. and everyone's all bummed and everything. And Woody's trying to keep everyone's spirits up, and he says. Well, come on, we you know we can hang out with the Christmas decorations. Those guys are fun, and everyone's like, eh. and yeah. I kind of liked that response, and then kind of got my imagination going. So I want to see like the world of the Christmas ornaments and the and the sure. Christmas decorations, and like the difference between like how how they function and the and when they come out of the the attic every year. Well, um, that, that's what I mean. Like it, it could almost. It could almost be a spinoff the way the way like planes was its own thing with cars. Like you right. can have it, you know, connected to the Toy Story greater universe without necessarily relying on Woody and Buzz and, and, and maybe like, uh, you know, find some new direction for it. Yeah, because it's the concept that I mean, people do like those characters, but. Sure. Um, and yeah, and we could obviously like have them pop in or, or whatever, but it could be they could not be the focus of it. Yeah, you could you could create new characters or give that a shot or whatever. Um, but yeah, I just I kind of like I want to see the world of Toy Story during Christmas time. Um, you know, it could be maybe like a Black Friday kind of thing or oh, it could that's be. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's like, there's a lot of different directions. Crackers come to life. Yeah, obviously. Um, I mean, I, it doesn't necessarily have to follow the same pattern of like the new toy comes in. Everyone feels neurotic about it. I think I maybe mean, that's been played to death. I feel like it kind of has to follow that pattern, right? I mean, that would be one way to go. But I I, th- I think there's more there's more you could do with it than that than just that. Well, it, it could also be uh, like you said, if it's set back when um, when Andy's Andy still a kid, kid and, yeah. you know. Because uh, he has like the little daughter, you know, it could be a thing where like the boy toys meet the girl toys for the first time. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be so gendered, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that would be fun. Uh, and that that's really all I had. Did you have any others that you were thinking about? Uh, no, I like I said, I literally thought of Toy Story as well, but uh, I think you thought it out a little bit more than I did. I just thought, oh, Toy Story, right? Um, right. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty much all I've got for now. 
Okay. Um, but I am a fan of any franchise being set during Christmas. I think I think it's uh it's I don't know. I just like it. I like it when they do it. It's a it's a very specific immediate setting. Right. Well, how do, how do you feel about uh television episodes that take place during Christmas? I love it. I like it when it's Christmas, but like if you're watching if you're binging and then it's not Christmas time. I tend to skip over those episodes that are like super holiday specific. Here's the thing. I mean, if a if a movie's a good movie, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't bother me, right? Like I prefer to watch Batman Returns at Christmas time, but I could watch it not at Christmas because it's such a great movie. Yeah, no, I I agree with you on that. And there's a lot of like those Christmas adjacent movies you know that are what, what christmas I, is just happening in the background that what I, I don't like is so so like uh like bob's burgers right yeah every year they do a halloween special they do uh uh thanksgiving special they do a christmas episode yeah uh and you know i've watched i just watch them as i watch the season because I, I i do prefer it at the time of year that it's set but it again it doesn't throw me off like i can watch it not at christmas time yeah it depends it depends for me and even with christmas movies or like christmasy movies there are some that i that i would rather watch within at least but you know in november december yeah yeah but i i i'm not gonna watch you know charlie brown christmas in the middle of july no, for sure. And and like Hawkeye, like I said, is so Christmassy. I probably would only want to watch it at Christmas time. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's a problem, especially in the days of streaming now where everything is at our, you know, fingertips whenever we want it. Like, yeah. there's nothing wrong with skipping the Christmas special and coming back to it during Christmas. That, so that's what makes a great Christmas special, right? It has to be a standalone story. Because mm-hmm. if, you know, like, I wouldn't want to see a lost Christmas episode, right? I mean, that they could do one. Sure. But Lost is, A, just doesn't feel very Christmas-centric. You know, maybe the flashbacks could be at Christmas time or whatever. But if they did, like, a whole Christmas, this is a Christmas episode... That's a little weird. I don't know. It just it just doesn't fit the rest of the show very well. I I don't think. And yeah. but see, actually, I think with more of a soapy style drama like Lost, um, it works better. I'm talking about like specifically like three camera sitcoms where sure. when they get to the Christmas episodes, you almost feel like the writers are just totally on autopilot you know it's just like yeah, 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 yeah. the most well, but, rote obvious stuff but that's and, what i'm saying like if it's good enough you can watch it anytime if it's not then you're not going to want to watch it anyway until it's christmas so it doesn't matter right right well if anybody has any ideas for other movie franchises that need a christmas uh need a christmasing um, or any other non-specific winter holiday traditions. Yeah. Let us know 
Uh, you can email us at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter and Instagram and uh, let us know if there's any that we're obviously forgetting. I feel like there are. I feel like there are just some things that just like, you know, yeah. like Fast and Furious or like Saw. Like there are some things that I just think are no brainers. Right. I like the idea that Saw is a no brainer. <laughs> um, it just works. It just makes sense. Let's go ahead and start talking about King Richard. This is a sports movie biopic that stars Will Smith as Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, the famed uh, tennis pros. Um, And it takes place uh, during the time that they were growing up in the late 80s and early 90s uh, in Compton, uh, California and Los Angeles. and. It kind of shows the family, you know, five kids. I mean, there was Serena and Venus, but they had three others there, too. And uh, his wife, uh, played by uh, Anjanou Ellis um, Oracine, who's kind of supporting the family as a nurse, takes on like double shifts and does all that stuff. While the dad, um, during his uh, non-working hours, is training Serena and Venus to be the best ever um, at tennis by watching tape. I mean, you kind of get the idea that both him and his wife had a background in tennis a little bit, but never really like quite made a pro or even like, you know, particularly successful in juniors or anything like that. But they, uh, he kind of sees it as this way of getting them out of poverty and sort of shielding them from the, the worst parts of living on the streets. Or living in rough neighborhoods that they that they come up from, so in one sense it kind of keeps him out of trouble because he's sort of constantly training them, and he's also giving them this purpose to to keep their eye on the prize and to as- aspire for more. And everybody in the family, you know, they have an older sister, the valedictorian of her class. They all are like great spellers, and you know they do a lot of like close knit family things, and they're very a little shielded, a little helicoptered um, by the by the parents, but also are learning a lot of these like bigger life lessons along the way. So it gets to a point where uh, Richard Williams sees the potential that they're actually good enough now to be let go in the hands of tennis pros as their coaches. So he kind of wheels and deals and takes them down to these uh uh, country clubs where these professionals are practicing or, or playing or teaching and uh, actually ropes in a few of these uh, pro coaches who are so impressed by their raw talent that they've learned from from years of practicing that they take on uh, these coaching gigs uh, sort of pro bono, um, mostly focusing on Venus because she is the older of the two. And she maybe has a little bit of an edge over her little sister. So, you know, the movie kind of goes from there. And I guess the conflict of the story comes from this sort of pivot point in which Richard has to decide as the father of the family, if he's going to let these girls actually compete in these um, high stakes junior tournaments or to kind of go a more untraditional route of training until they're old enough to go pro without actually competing. Yeah. So, uh, and, and a big part of that is he doesn't want to push them too early 
mm-hmm. uh, to be, you know, to get the have the pressure of these tournaments that don't really matter for their careers, but oh, it uh, matters. You know, it, it, essentially, they're like the the gateway to becoming a pro tennis player. Yeah. But, but at that age, they you know they get burnt out. They get you know they get too much money, too young. They get right. access to things they shouldn't necessarily like. It's, you know, a young athlete rising to fame isn't that different than a young actor rising to fame. Yeah, there's a there's a big elephant in the room of this story um, that never quite gets mentioned by name. But I don't want to talk about that just yet. First, I just want to kind of get our like snap reactions. Um, What did we think of of King Richard? Um, I think this is a pretty interesting take on the sports biopic because mm-hmm. it it doesn't try to like go through the Williams sisters whole career. Um, right. And it, you know, they're, they are main characters, but they're not the central character. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's interesting to sort of see it from, it's not exactly an outside perspective, right? Cause he's their dad and he's their coach, but it's, it's not the same as, you know, the traditional biopic where it's, this is when they're young and training and this is when they get good and then they get big. And then it's, you know, usually a rise and fall story or it's a rise and rise story. And it's, you know, right. Um, I think it's kind of, it has that. a little bit of, it does have those beats, yeah. but they're, they're like a smaller, more like less high stakes. Um, microcosm of those larger beats it's interesting because it's yeah it's just a snapshot of this time of their life you know when they were really transitioning from this life of obscurity and relative poverty to uh fame and fortune right Uh, right but the movie's not interested in their fame and fortune days because we all know we all know the williams sister legacy you know right uh literally greatest tennis players of all time right yeah uh multiple Wheaties boxes shoe deals the whole nine yards yeah uh yeah the the amount of championships between the two of them i don't even know because i don't follow tennis but (laughs) i know it's incredible like they're but incredible uh, athletes but this isn't right this isn't that story this isn't because again we know where it goes as much as i don't know that world i know who serena williams is Exactly. I know the name. I know Venus Williams. I yeah, you heard those names growing up like you would hear any major athlete like Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan or whatever. Absolutely. And yeah. so I I think it's cool that it it does the movie's not about that. It's not about that. It's it's about this background of them uh, mm-hmm. uh and it's about their father who obviously loved them um and saw their potential and you know, wasn't going to listen to anybody on, on how to do it and being a father or being a coach. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I do think it's a very interesting take on, on sort of the traditional sports movie, but like you said, it has all those beats that you want from a sports movie. It has the training montages. It has the, the winning montages of them, yeah, like getting the trophies the, and the high stakes game at the end. It has, right. you know, uh, so it it has all the fun of a sports movie, but in this very specific little universe, yeah, and in yeah, this so. very small window of time. And I think that's what that 
that's what's key for me in why the story works the way that it does is that whenever you're doing a genre like this, that's been done to death. Mm -hmm. And even if it's one that generally everyone always kind of likes every time they see it, like it's, it's a, it's a formula that's kind of bulletproof. I mean, yeah. Who, who doesn't love a good sports movie? Exactly. I mean, I don't even particularly care for sports, but I, I don't mind a good sports movie. That's what sports movies are good at. They're good at giving you the drama drama. that a sports fan that someone who does give a shit about sports that they experience, but they do it in a cinematic way. That's why it works because sports are dramatic. It is, you know, it is a fan of, uh, of a, a franchise team. They are, that is their outlet for, you know, for this kind of drama. And mm-hmm. so that's why they work as movies because you can manufacture it. You can, you can play those feelings that a fan will feel during you know this very important game and you just make it so that everyone in the in the movie theater can yeah there's a relatable human experience in achievement yeah Um, but like you said with a genre that is done to death how do you do it in a new way how do you do it in a in a way that's not totally you know hitting every cliche in the book Right. And I think that 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 limiting its time frame to just this part of their lives mm-hmm. was really interesting. And also, you could see, I don't know, not a gimmick necessarily, but just sort of the the entry point in the story being through the eyes of the father rather than Serena and Venus, which I could also see some people having an issue with. Like this, like, why are we seeing their story through this guy like you know the like, mm-hmm. where's and i think i think i was i was feeling that a little bit at a point until we get towards the third act and then it yeah it so, does start to become more their story than his and that is i think that is where ultimately that's the character arc yeah that's, that, that's the arc and that's, of the film. that's where the tension comes from in this movie because right. again we know we know the williams sister story so it can't come from this Oh, are they going to make it? Like, of course, we fucking know they make it. Like, right? They're going to make it big, but so, so the I, the drama, the tension, the conflict has to come from this from somewhere thing. else, and Ooh. and I think exactly that. Like the the way the story is framed from the father's point of view, and the conflict is that point of view shifting. Is is him giving up? You know, can he let go? Right of of his stubbornness and his ways, and and let them become individuals. That that's that's the story. That is the you know exactly that a hundred percent. And before it got to that point, because it it is a while into the movie before mm-hmm. the girls are really kind of fully flushed out. Yeah, I was I was having a few worries about the story. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was, one of them was that, that they was like, why are they not telling the story through their perspective, at least a little? You were right in saying that that's the point of the story is that it has to become their dreams and desires, not just their father's. Yeah. And that's that, that pivot. Even though every time a coach is talking to them or a reporter is talking to them, they confidently say, I want to be the best. I, I'm, you still kind of get this idea like, they're just kind of parroting the yeah. mantra that their father's drilled into them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that point where there is actual family tension and drama, it's because of that growth of those characters doing it for themselves now. Yeah. Um, and that's great. And I think that, you know, thank God that that happens. Well, and, and I, my can... other, my other issue with the, with the movie mm-hmm. up to that point, which I, th- I, I think it does get resolved. This is a little bootstrappy. And I understand it's like the sports movie dramas kind of are play on this kind of very American idea of like, you can come from nothing and sure, you can, yeah, yeah. you know, you can dr- dream and you can well, and lie. And I mean, you know also I mean? that is, that is why those are the stories that sell. Right. Because it is, it is uh, to an extent uh, a, a power fantasy, <laughs> you know, yeah. it is as much a fantasy, those sports, those kind of, even if they're based on real people, we're talking about a, a you know a, a minuscule um, percentage of people who are actually able to to really pull themselves out of that kind of poverty into becoming the superstars that those two became. Mm-hmm. And I think if we had just if it had just been like they got there because because they were just that damn good, and that you know to an extent that is the story, but I think that. We needed that conflict, that family conflict, that kind of tug and pull between yeah. those different points of view and 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 that, you know, coming of age moment for those girls mm-hmm. so that it wasn't just a story about, you know, American capitalist aspiration. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and I agree with you. And, and I think it's easy to feel that in the first chunk of this movie. Right. I mean, I was still enjoying it. It was I. I liked it. In you know, it was a. It was well, it ticking all the genre well. boxes, and it, I was still enjoying my, my my way there. But I was I was like, oh, this is. Um, well, yeah, and and I mean, part of it is is Will Smith yes. as this patriarch is churning out a great performance, but it is also a performance. It is very. He's not playing himself. Yeah, and and it's it's very recognizable because Will Smith is you know one of the most famous actors in the world. Yeah, uh, and here he's he's putting on a dialect. He he, he has like a different physicality for to sure. the role. And, and I I don't want to take anything away from him because I do genuinely think his performance is great. I think he's really good in the movie, but it is so big uh, and sort of actorly. Yet yeah. it's easy for, especially at the beginning, for that to kind of overshadow the rest of the movie. Right. Right. Like when you're seeing him giving these, you know, life lessons and stuff, it's like, okay. But what we really needed to see, and he, you know, he does do a lot of this work and he gets them a lot of the way, but we need to see that moment where this character is wrong, where, where, right. Where, you know, he's pushing them too far or pushing them to, to like you said we against that their art. best wishes yeah yeah or against the even their their stated goals yeah um yeah and i thought and and you do see this like moment where the character you know because he he has it all figured out or believes that he does you see that moment where he finally lets go and kind of yeah. lets them choose their own future and you realize that it wasn't just that he's holding them back for fear of them getting into money and drugs or whatever, um, or, you know, becoming famous too early or like burning out. Like that's, those were his excuses. Yes. But the real fear was he was, he was afraid of failure. 
mm-hmm. and he was projecting this deep rooted pathology in him. Well, yeah, which them. I mean, you know, is very justifiable. He came from a very different America in terms of race. It, absolutely. And and that's, you know, I that's also a very important part of of his character and and the way the Williams sisters are brought up, uh, you know, it's you know, it's a very interesting deep character arc. Like I I I'm glad they don't shy away from that stuff, but I'm also glad that the movie doesn't become too it's not messagey it's just that's the character that's what he grew up with right i mean there's there's lots of different ways you can watch this movie and i think that the the more shallow point of view of experiencing the story is to just kind of see those those sports movie sports movie beats and go like okay great and then they you know and they live happily ever after and they're now the, the biggest stars in the world and mm-hmm. their dad knew everything and blah 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 you can watch it in that way and enjoy it on that level i think yeah. the movie actually is a little bit more subversive than that um mm-hmm. and is telling a deeper story a character study underneath just the sports movie clichés well I, I remember seeing the trailers and i was i was kind of expecting it to be that mhm I was kind of expecting it to be like, oh, okay, you know, this will be a feel-good biopic. Yeah, uh, you know, and the movie kind of sets itself up as being that. And and like you said, on one level, it is, but I do think the movie is is interested in in telling a deeper conversation, and I think that's to the movie's benefit. I agree. I agree. Now, the elephant in the room, for me. Yeah, it's never brought up. Uh, out loud in the story, but I had to look it up. I don't know if I know what this is. So, <laughs> so at one point they're eating um, fast food somewhere after a big practice or something like that, and they do a dinner prayer that you've heard a thousand times in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, except for he refers to a god as Jehovah, which yes, I was like, huh. That's you don't hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. I looked it up. The um, Williams sisters and the Williams family were Jehovah's Witness, okay. which is a very particular kind of upbringing that would explain a lot of the things that are happening in that family dynamic th- without um, explicitly coming out and saying it. I mean the the uh, the way that the father is sort of very much a patriarch and like, you know, there's another scene where though him and his wife disagree on an issue, when there's another man in the room who consults the wife directly, she doesn't say anything. And she, she defers to the husband, even though they disagree. Hmm. Um, things like that. Uh, there's, you know, the, the, the sort of helicoptery element of, uh, the presence over the kids and, you know, making sure they do all their school and making sure and none of these things are negative or bad things. Um, the, uh, but I'm, I'm saying there's a, sp- a particular kind of strictness within that culture and that religion sure. that informs this upbringing in a way that the movie never explicitly comes out and says, I think almost in a way they just threw in that one thing for the for the people in the know. I mean, I did not pick up on it at all. I I I do remember him saying Jehovah and thinking that was interesting, but I 
you know, it was kind of water off a duck's back for me. Right. Because it is, it's also a sort of a catch all for God and it's, it's interchangeable in a lot of different faiths, but it's um, also in America. Anyways, um, there are a lot of African American communities that are Jehovah's witness. Sure. Um, it's very common in certain parts of the country. Um, so I kind of put two and two together, looked it up, Wikipedia, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I don't know to the extent that, you know, this faith is still in their lives or if it's something that's, you know, I don't know that much about them outside of their celebrity status as, as athletes. Um, but I think that there is, once you know that it's hard to not see it all over the film. Okay. Uh, so now I guess I, I think that's actually even better kind of the way they dealt with it then. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I don't, I don't know that it necessarily matters. Like, I think, I think if you can get that, if you can infer the background of those characters. Yeah. From, from just that, you know, that like kind of one reference and kind of just the way the family dynamic is. I actually think that's, that's well done because that's not what the movie's about. Right. But, you know, if that is their actual background, I, I don't know. I I think, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, you know, I don't think that that it's not one thing or the other with the movie. I don't, I'm not saying it is like a, as a, um, a negative on the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just interesting that, uh, it wasn't kind of a bigger part of the story, even though it is very much a part of the story. Well, sh- sure. But, you know, it, I guess, you know, we're kind of speaking on, we're definitely speaking on stuff we don't know because I, you know, right. Who, who knows if they're, you know, currently practicing, who, who know, I, I, we don't know their background, right? Right. Uh, it, you know, and that would be like if there was a movie about me tried to frame like my Christianity is because uh, like, I'm not, I don't even really identify as Christian anymore, but I was definitely raised Christian. Sure. You know, that would be weird to make it a big deal. Right. Yeah. I mean, and especially if it wasn't or whatever, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking based on just the context clues that it probably was in the case of these girls and yeah, the case maybe. of this family. But, but yeah, I'm just putting that out there. It doesn't necessarily mean anything one way or the other, other than I do think that is part of the story. I, um, I, I definitely think it's interesting, but I yeah. don't, I don't know that it needed to be m- more of a part of the story than it was, if that makes sense. No, it's, I mean, if they, I mean, you know, they don't really focus on like their school lives all that much either. Yeah. You know, you know that they're good and that they're doing well. Yeah, um, and, you, and you know that you, you don't even really know to the extent of like, well, I mean, they kind of cover like the crime and stuff in Compton, and there's like these gang members that they have to sort of avoid, and and uh, he's sort of protecting them from. And there's a little bit of like in the background of the story, you see like the Rodney King situation and stuff like that. So they try to inform it the story a little bit with with kind of the current events of the time. Sure, um, but I, I think that's just... But that's also not, like, the driving force of the film, either. Exactly. I, I think that just goes to the... Again, goes back to the fact that this movie is just kind of a snapshot in time. It's Right. It's, it, it's just... It, it's part of the world building and the storytelling at the same time, which is actually good writing. 
Yeah, I, I agree. There, or there's a lot of showing and not telling, and I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh, you know they start to win all these little trophies and stuff with these these tiny little competitions they're doing, these local competitions, and they start to you know get loud and blustery in the back of the van about them winning and as little kids will do Mm -hmm. um and he decides he's going to show them cinderella over and over again until they understand the true meaning of the movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) and at first they're like yay and they're like no we're gonna watch it again you didn't get it well, it, and that's what I mean. Like, uh, uh, I, I think all parents should be like that about all movies, personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's what I mean when I'm like this. You know, Will Smith, Will Smith's character was so was so big, and and it it was set up that you know it's like he's he's unconventional, but he's right, and they needed those moments where he's like, where it's like, okay you're taking this a little too far. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's driven to the point of pathology. He's, yeah. you know, and he's, he's obviously sort of projecting a sort of fear of failure. Um, I mean, a lot, this, this is a lot of parents, everyone, everyone's parents wants their, the, the lives of their children to be better than their own. Um, yeah, but it's that I mean, to, uh, to a hundred thousand degrees. Yeah. And I mean, it worked. Yeah. So. I mean, Yes, it did. Um, and we should talk about the acting because this is sort of an actor showcase. I think Will Smith is good in the film. I do think that he might get overlooked because he's the central figure of it. And it is hard to like what you're saying. It's he's acting. You know? Yeah, it's it, it's 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 tough because when he doesn't disappear in the role, but he's also very much in service of it. Exactly. That it, it it's a good performance, but it yeah, it's not I and you know, it's again And it's, it's might just because he's such a superstar. Yeah, he's you Will know. he's Will Smith and and yeah, I think it's kind of the same thing, you know, when you see when you would see like Jim Carrey take on a dramatic role or whatever. It's like I I I just feel like it's very easy to write off the performance because of their fame, because of their background, because I Yeah. Wilson, he's doing all the work. Uh, and it's also, not for nothing, one of the better things he's been in and been a part of in a good long while. Yeah. And we should encourage that. He was also a producer on the film. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it's a, it's a great performance. And like you said, he doesn't disappear in the role, but but he, he, yes, it's in service of the role. And, and he hits all the emotional beats. He hits all of the the relationship stuff he hits i think it's a good performance i agree uh, i think anjanu ellis as his wife is is actually incredible I, I she might be the standout here i think she she does a lot with not a lot of pages of script yeah you get a full feel for that character in and she gets a few big scenes yes she definitely gets her due but not as much as Will Smith, but I think she's doing just as good of a performance. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, both of the coaches, John Bernthal and Tony uh, Goldwyn, who plays their first coach, Paul Cohen, they're really, really good in here. And they're great foils to the Will Smith character. Because, you, yeah. you, you know, I mean, it's literally like kind of a competing father figure situation. Sure. Yeah. And, sure they're, it is. and they're both kind of like very different. 
from his, you know, I mean, there's in the case of the first coach, there's this constant argument about their stance, um, which, you know, he digs his heels in on that because it's like his one. He did, he wants to see himself at least a little bit on the well, yeah, on the court. Absolutely. <laughs> he, you um, know, he got them. He got them this far by yeah. doing it his way. He, he want Yeah, he wants. He does want people to know, you know, that that he's the one who got him there. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's there's a lot of fun banter between them, and then John Bernthal. He's, I think he's. I don't, is it even fair to say that he's underappreciated? I don't. Th- I, I guess he's not. He's getting the roles he should be getting. Yeah, I, I don't I, know if people think of him as like our generation's De Niro or something, but I think he kind of is. I kind of agree with you. I think he he can do the tough guy. He can do. But he can do so much more than that. And yeah, and, he can be a sinister, right. disgusting villain. He can also be like this, this like lighthearted, funny character. This charming kind of a doof, but like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. John Bernthal's great. Um, also, you know, the girls who play the Williams sisters are great. Like, like you said, yeah. we don't, early on in the movie, we don't get as much of their point of view or their, character but um I, you know once we get to that pivotal moment with venus williams uh yeah the the actress sanaya sydney uh you know she she takes control of it she's yeah great. it becomes it be, at that moment it becomes her movie yeah and and she is capable enough to to take that focus to take mm-hmm. it on so i thought that was really cool yeah, and this is, you know, this is a longer movie, um, and I felt like it was ex- expertly paced. Unlike what we talked about last week with Gucci, I felt like it was appropriately paced for yeah, the type I mean, of story it's telling. Also, again, this kind of movie has those beats kind of built into it. So, you know, in, and I think I think you're right. This movie hits them at all the right time. Ain't Again, this kind of movie you go into knowing it's probably going to be a little bit longer, but but yeah, I never feel like it like wears out its welcome. I agree with you. Great. Well, so what what do you give uh, King Richard? I'm going to give it a A minus. I think it's great. Yeah, that was that was the same grade I gave it. I I think um, yeah, solid movie. Yes, I mean especially if you're a sports fan and you already know the history of these characters and. You just kind of want to see this play out in a dramatic way. It's going to be great for you. But even if you're not, if you could care the fuck less about tennis as I do. Yeah. Um, I still felt all the drama necessary to care about these characters. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's funny. It's charming. It's feel good. It's dramatic. It's got all of the things you want in a yeah. sports movie. But it also doesn't feel saccharine or preachy. No, again, based on the trailers, I was definitely expecting a lot more of that. Yeah, I was expecting it to be like, okay, but no, it's it's, it's really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go ahead then and start talking about Midnight Run. This was the streaming homework that I assigned you uh, last week, and this came out in 1988. It is on Netflix. What is it about? Uh, Robert De Niro plays this bounty hunter. And uh, he's called in by Bail Bonds broker played by uh, Joe Pantaleona. Mm-hmm. 
and he you know he says he's got this job for him you know it's it's an easy job it's a midnight run he's got to go pick up this white collar criminal played by charles groden who embezzled all this money from the mob and then gave this money away to charity um he kept just enough you know that he thought he could make an escape um but he jumped bail and now uh he's you know sending robert de niro to go pick this guy up there's also this element of uh you know because he's tied to this mob crime the fbi gets involved in the search and there's also another competing bounty hunter uh hunting for this guy as well as the mob um yeah uh so you know it's kind of all of these targets aiming at charles groden and you know robert de niro has to get him back to la by midnight on like the following saturday uh you know and as they are going as he's picking them up you know they get on to various misadventures like you know you think oh well they can just fly across the country it's not that easy right. uh, they get kicked off the airplane and then uh you know they have to find other means of transportation and it becomes a road comedy yeah it, it, exactly it's a buddy it's a buddy action road comedy yeah this is like Transplanes and automobiles meets Get Shorty. Uh, I was going to say Planes, Trains, Automobiles meets the uh, movie Bulletproof with Adam Sandler and Damon Wayans. That too. <laughs> which was obviously heavily influenced by this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I uh, didn't know a lot about this movie going in, so I knew it was a crime movie of sorts. Obviously, De Niro. Um, you look at the cast list and. Uh, the type of stuff that was yeah, coming out got at that time. Robert De Niro, you've got uh Yafet Koto, you've got Dennis Farina, you've got Joe Pantaleone, like Yeah. Philip yeah. Baker Hall. You have all these guys who kind of show up as tough guys in movies. In a way, this is kind of like the beginning of movies sort of poking fun at those um character types. Like you see this movie. And it feels very much of its time. And it feels like it's it's maybe a little bit more uh, well, comedically conventional. But it is uh, this type of exploration of these characters is what would later kind of transition into like the get shorties and, and the out of sights and that kind of stuff. Like it's For sure. it's not quite that postmodern yet. But it's definitely because it's definitely a, a crime movie. It's definitely playing all of that stuff straight, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's having fun with the characters. It's got a little bit of a lighter touch. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, you, the then the kind of movies where the stakes are so life or death, like, you know, halfway through this movie, you kind of know everything's going to work out. Sure, just by sort of by the tone, yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's got that buddy like road movie vibe going on. That you know, if it, it had a really bummer ending, it would feel kind of out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But it's still like enough tension to keep you invested. But the way the ending kind of occurs, where you have this, you know, this big convergence of all of these interested parties, 
kind of clashing all at once. So it's like this is almost how like Tarantino like you <laughs> like scripts a lot of his stuff. Kinda, like, yeah, because it, it almost has like... this kind of like true romance style ending. It's true, and th- there is definitely a couple moments where you're like, oh, well, this is a bummer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, like the movie is it's 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 interesting it's an interesting watch because it is kind of light and and um low stakes in a lot of ways, but then like it's a pretty hard R. Like I mean as far as the F count goes, well, yeah. this had to be pretty high at the time, which is interesting because if if it wasn't for that like one aspect, there's not yeah. really much else hard R stuff. Like there's no nudity there's yeah. no um you know like sexually explicit material there the action is pretty i mean bloodless yeah yeah it's it's decent action but yeah it's not gory it's not yeah so i do think that aspect of it is interesting which leads me to a wonder because there's a lot of sequences that feel like they're going off script a little bit and getting a little riffy yeah and maybe. and there's a looseness to the dialogue where I wonder I if De Niro's that kind of an actor, though. I think he's up for it. I don't think he's necessarily like the improv guy, but I think that if you ask him to feel comfortable in the scene and to play off of his co-star, he will. Sure. Um, yeah. And I, and I think Charles Grodin is a lot more kind of tapped into like comedy with oh, a capital yeah. C. I mean, Charles Grodin is so great, and he's he's, he's great, great in, in this, this movie. Yes. I mean, and it's such an interesting role for him to play, especially across De Niro, because you don't necessarily think of him as he's usually like the stuff shirt, angry dad or the, you know, I guess I'm just thinking fucking Beethoven or whatever, but, <laughs> <laughs> or Clifford, um, these children's movies that well, I saw but, him in. But that did kind of, yeah, that became kind of his, his brand for a little bit there. Yeah. In the nineties, especially. And I, I kind of think I don't necessarily thinking. Because in this, he's not the straight man per se. Like he's this kind of neurotic nag. No, I would say. (laughs) Like this would would normally uh, be. I know this is kind of maybe like controversial or whatever to say, but this would kind of be like the Woody Allen role in a different movie. Sure. Yeah. Because, well, so. Or like if it were today, it would be. It would be Zach Galifianakis. I mean, like literally. Well, that, so that's that was what that I'm movie. saying is, is he's not the straight man at all. De Niro's the straight man. Right. Every everyone around him is this this world of crime and bounty hunters and FBI and mob, right? And he's just he's a you know he's a white collar criminal. He and he embezzled money. He's not. Yeah, he's the fish out of water. Yeah. So he is the the uh point of view that doesn't match that makes him you know that makes him the crazy guy that makes de niro the voice of reason because he's like no this is how things work i'm gonna take you back like you know yeah uh, but it's an interesting it creates for like an interesting chemistry because you know in any other movie charles Grodin would be playing de niro's boss or something and he would he would just be there he would just be there to facilitate that yeah for sure. Uh, I feel like this movie gives Charles Grodin a chance to shine. In a- yeah. And, and I think what's great about the fact that he's not the straight man in the film, but he's not necessarily that kind of actor. Like they, they did, you know, even like, you know, somebody like uh, Dustin Hoffman or something would have come in there with a bit more of like a, a character 
character. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas I think Charles Grodin doesn't rely on being wacky or, or like building too much of like a, a physical performance. It all comes from this very subtle delivery The you know, the oh, way he kind of side eyes. This is, this is like the textbook definition of sardonic wit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, he's, and the character could be very annoying. Like if just off the page, if um, well, if it was a lesser actor, that way, like right. he's definitely getting on De Niro's nerves. But the, in turn, that could be a detriment to the movie if the if the if you're not if you're not in the in on the joke with the actor. But he's so good that you are. Oh, absolutely, and and I, yeah, it's it's also kind of like you know the beginning of of that like odd casting pairing, right? Um, you saw it a, a little bit in the eighties with like Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy and Forty Eight Hours, right? It, like again, it's the yeah, buddy, yeah, yeah. it's the 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 buddy cop formula, yeah. right? A, yeah, I mean, it's kind of playing off like the lethal weapony type stuff, and I mean, there were there were things uh, in this ballpark, but this, um, I mean, this is a little bit of more of a genre mashup. Well, it's it's just interesting to see how that as a genre has evolved to the point of absurdity to the point where you would get somebody to do, you know, uh, this big broad performance versus, you know, it it was so refreshing to see Charles Grodin kind of downplay the character. Yeah. To just be like a normal guy. Who's, who's just, you know, probably the smartest guy in the room. And, uh, and, you know, also pretty cutting and, and, uh, but also very charming. Like yeah. it's, it's a very interesting. Like if the, if the movie was made today, it would, it would be like John Hamm in the, in the De Niro role and, uh, Charlie Day as, as the, uh, as the, uh, uh Charles Grodin role. Absolutely. Which uh, honestly, I mean, that would be funny. I, I'm maybe not, but... I'm not, not, into that <laughs> i i actually feel like you know it but in that case the the casting is doing all the work well yes but i'm saying we've seen we've seen uh you know the worst version of this kind of casting all the time now right like we see way more annoying versions of it than 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 those two actors the, the, if they did it now it would be it'd probably be fucking robert de niro and fucking kevin james right yeah i mean something like that i mean there's been a hundred thousand of these type of things um and so it's interesting to kind of see see this movie as this kind of like interesting place in movie history with both within the crime genre and the buddy movie genre and the road movie genre and like all kind of converging at the same time also uh this movie you know yes the historical aspect of it is interesting but as a movie it's really fun Uh It's really charming. It moves really quick. It's just a, it's a fun movie. Like, like you said, uh, it, it has planes, trains, and automobile vibes, but you know, with a little more stakes. Like, it's just, I, I loved it. Yeah. When it gets into the crime stuff, I like that. Um, I, I, I especially, and I think there's a lot of fun side characters in here. Like everybody kind of gets, a, even if they're only in the movie for a tiny bit, like they really stand out. Yeah. Um, I mean, Yafat Koto is great in the movie. I really like John Ashton as the competing 
Um, oh, yeah, uh, he was a lot of fun as Marvin. Yeah, Marvin, the the other um, uh, bounty hunter that sort of gets in the way. He almost feels like he's like from a Coen Brothers movie or something and stepped into this. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Because he's <laughs> he's a bounty hunter, but he's like kind of a shit kicker. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, a sleaze, he's and a, a dirt very bag. fun. Uh, yeah, Dennis Farina for... is great and everything. Even though he's the same character and everything he's in, I always like it. Well, um, he, he just does it so well. That, yeah. And yeah. this was kind of, you know, when he was like defining that for himself. Right. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, in his heyday. Um, yeah. Weird note. Philip Baker Hall is in this movie who plays a guy with mob connections who lives in Vegas. And his name is Sidney. Paul Thomas Anderson's first film, Hard Eight, stars Philip Baker Hall as a guy with mob connections who lives in Vegas. And his name is Sidney. In my headcanon, they're the same character. I mean, it might be more than headcanon. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can only imagine that uh, P.T. Anderson saw this movie and loved it and was like, I just want to know what's up with that guy's world. Sure. Yeah. I um, mean, you're probably not wrong. Like, <laughs> like yeah. I bet if you look up the trivia, that might be connected. I mean, I, I did. Um, uh-huh. And people have mentioned it just kind of in the same way that I did. It's just like, huh weird um but nobody's i don't i don't think paul thomas anderson has ever like nothing on right no um uh, maybe there might be a version of uh heart aid out there with a commentary track i'd have to listen to it and see if he says anything but i don't think there's anything on record of him mentioning midnight run with that character um but i just thought that was weird and and yeah like i said in my head they are the same character yeah sure uh, that's what he ends up doing later in the 90s. Is Yeah, uh, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on the pacing. I did feel the length a little bit on this. Um, there is a, there's a moment in the film where there's, it kind of sags a bit in the road comedy stuff where we're just kind of going from one, you know, I, getting I kicked off of a, a bus to getting on a train and blah, 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 blah. I, and, I do agree that it, it's maybe like one misadventure too long, but. Yeah, I was just having a, so much fun with the characters that it it didn't bother me. No, it, it didn't bother me. I just know there was a point where I paused it to like, use the bathroom or something. I was like, there's still 40 minutes. Like, I well, thought we then, were getting close to the end here. And then uh, the, the resolution actually, like, wraps up pretty quickly. Yeah, too. then things are, like, cooking. And then, you know, when things when when things, like, come to a head, it all feels very well paced at that point. But there's, there's just a moment in the uh, you know, maybe a 20 minute stretch in the movie in the middle of there where it's kind of running on fumes a little bit. But mm-hmm. I, I still uh, I had a lot of fun with this movie. My other complaint with it is I think the score dates the movie hard as fuck. Yeah, it's this very like 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 jazzy saxophone thing that. Yeah. Well, and, also, and a little bit of and a little bit of kind of like uh, rockabilly guitar plucking and just if you if you think of like the Thelma and Louise score that Hans Zimmer did, it's like that, but without any of the subtlety. Yeah, it's, um, it's not great. Yeah, and and it, it, uh, it I I actually feel like the, a lot of scenes are overly scored. There's some stuff that didn't need it at all, and there's. Wow. <laughs> yeah they kind of underline a lot of the jokes again this is the stuff that just sort of dates it 
In my I, mind, I agree. I agree. With but that. who agree. would you think did that score? Because unless you looked it up, it is not who you think. Oh, I don't know. I would have no idea. Who would you think? I, I don't know. Billy Jazz and the Blues Group. <laughs> I, I literally, I have no idea. I I don't think I really understood, like, scores until, you know, fucking John Williams. Well, I mean, yeah. It's not him. It would no. have been better if it was. Um, Danny Elfman did the score. I mean, it kind of makes sense. You know, it, it's, you know, like, with... This is, like, right at the height of his, like, Burton era. Yeah, 1988. So he would have he would have only just been doing scores for a, for a handful of years at that point. You know, coming out of Boingo Boingo and then doing the Burton the first few Burton films. Yeah. So well, to, I mean I, mean, I guess he wants to was... show that he will, uh, has diversity and not all of Danny Danny Elfman has done non Burton-y sounding scores before. For sure. I mean, I mean, that would be a very different movie if it had like the kind of angelic choir and like the pum pum pums and you know, yeah, <laughs> the big orchestral <laughs> stuff that he does. Yeah, yeah. I, I I wouldn't expect that, but you can. And then maybe he just wanted to show that he can do other stuff and he can you know, you know, incorporate other styles or something. I think this is maybe too far out of his wheelhouse, and maybe that's why it's not very good. Well, um, you know, it's also. You know how the director uses the score and how the edit out comes together in editing and editing and stuff, too. So. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of things. Um, I I I think they could have toned down the score a lot, and the I, movie the movie would have uh, suffered less for it. But otherwise, I I enjoyed this a lot, and I think it's a fun, you know, kind of who's who of these character actors at this time. Yeah, I think and, it's just like it's a fun. Uh, action comedy that you don't you're that's not gonna like it's mm. not too intense but it's it's just a fun movie you know yeah. when, when movies could just be like a, a a vibe yeah exactly uh and there's the, the the chase sequences and stuff that they have are pretty good yeah um you know the final sequence is tense enough um there's a lot you know there's a lot of like moving plates here but the story never feels like it gets away from itself yeah the, um the- the kind of twist at the end, I think, is is really heartfelt and, and good and solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recommend Midnight Run. Yeah, me too. Same. Uh, and what? I'm sure all of your dads do as well. Oh, yeah, this is like you're definitely a dad's favorite movie kind of movie. What did you have for the next time we do an episode? Uh, so hopefully the next time we do an episode, we will have both seen uh, The Matrix Resurrections. And so I thought it would be fun to go back in time with Keanu in a different cyberspace, uh, not Matrix related. But just before that, he did the cyberpunk hacker action film Johnny Mnemonic uh, that I would like to visit. Yes, I've been meaning to see it for a while. Um, And is currently streaming on Netflix. Yes, and probably because of the Matrix coming out. Yeah. Because I believe HBO Max has the rights to all the Matrix stuff right now. So <laughs> they probably had to throw out any Keanu that they had in their catalog. Um, but yeah, if anybody has anything to say about that movie or any of the movies we talked about on this episode, you can reach us at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us at mcguffinpod on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mcguffinpod. 
Uh, you can read my movie reviews for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews. That will take you to the review archives. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. Uh, be sure to leave the podcast a five-star rating and a one-sentence review at whatever your favorite podcatcher is. iTunes, Stitcher, Player.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We're on all of it. We are not going to be doing an episode over the Christmas holiday. We're going to, you know, Keith's going to be flying this, there, and everywhere. He's he's going to collect all the new strains of COVID. We're, we're actually... Uh, driving so oh okay well there's that too and uh we're (laughs) we're gonna be doing the holiday with our families and stuff so we're gonna pick up again um uh in a few weeks but hopefully we'll have seen some of the major christmas releases to talk about what is your stuff uh you can follow me on uh twitter and instagram i've currently deleted twitter until i see the new spider-man movie you can still follow me at keith foster kid um I've actually been tweeting a lot about my old thoughts on old Spider-Mans because I've been uh, rewatching them yeah. um, in anticipation of this new one. Uh, so, yeah, check that out. And you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of the episode. You have two emotions, silence and rage. Bye.